0: Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient, comfortable. Ah. Welcome to China Corner Office, a podcast produced in partnership with SubChina featuring conversations with business leaders from around the world about the challenges and opportunities of doing business in China, the world's most dynamic economy. I'm Chris Marquis, a professor of business at Cornell, where I teach and research on this same topic. Every episode, we talk to an executive at a company doing business in China and explore what has led to their personal and business success and also some of the challenges they've encountered along the way. With geopolitical tensions between the U.S. and China on the rise, understanding how business can compete in China is more important than ever. If you're interested in doing business in China or are looking for insights to adjust your current business strategy, this is the show for you. Thanks for tuning in. Today we're talking to Lola Song, who is Global Fellow at the Wharton School and also holds an MPA degree from the University of Pennsylvania. A former journalist and editor, Lola has worked for Beijing News and Saijing Magazine covering business and politics and also has experience in startups and multinationals both in the U.S. and China. Lola was also a visiting scholar at the Berkeley School of Journalism. She is the co-author with Carl Ulrich of Winning in China, Eight stories of success and failure in the world's largest economy, which will be the topic of our discussion today. Lola, welcome to China Corner Office.
1: Thanks for having me, Chris. Uh, I'm a big fan of China Corner Office and I listen to each episode.
0: Oh, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, really looking forward to our discussion uh, today. So, you know, it's great to read your book has lots of really interesting case studies uh, and analysis and actually really sort of, I think, helpful framework, which we'll talk about for uh, businesses, how to succeed uh, in China. You know, before diving into all the examples and what conclusions you draw, you know, we'd love to hear just a little bit of background. You know, why did you write this book?
1: Uh, you know, I was a journalist uh, covering business and politics in China, and then I moved to the U.S., finished school and switched my career. But as a former journalist, I still followed uh, current affairs. So I saw a gap in English coverage of China. There was a lot of interest in China's politics, economy, and Chinese companies like Alibaba, Biden, Xiaomi, but not much on multinational corporations in China. Uh, in fact, they have been a critical component of China's economy ever since the opening up and the reform, and there are around 1 million of them in China. So those companies had fascinating stories, but many of them had never been told. For those who got covered, I found many of them are sort of on the surface. So that's why I thought there might be an opportunity to uh, bridge the gap and help our readers understand China from a different perspective. Also, as a former journalist, I was so obsessed with failure. So initially I wanted to write a book all about failure. And then I met Carl. He's a professor at the Warden school. So he convinced me uh, I should also include the stories of successes. Uh, So he also offered to work together. Uh, So we became co-authors and wrote the book.
0: Yeah, re- really interesting. And I, and I totally agree with you. I mean, I do think, yeah, there is a fascination with all these amazing, innovative Chinese companies, um, but less coverage on on the multinationals and sort of people in you know, companies from the US, for instance, you know, going and doing business in China. And that's actually one of the reasons why we started this podcast to try to sort of shine light. And so in and, and understand the successes and failures to help other people that want to do business uh, in China. And I agree with you that you know sort of the failure cases are always so interesting, but it's frequently hard to get information on on them. So I think that's a really you know sort of valuable contribution for you to actually dig in, uh, dig into those. You know, so I'd love to sort of start with one of the big failure cases, and it's one of the more interesting uh, ones. And it's Amazon. You know, Amazon is such a, like a juggernaut in most of the contexts in which it competes you know, but in China, it's run into troubles. And I think, you know, this might come as a surprise to some folks who have been to China, because I know, you know, when I'm there, you sort of see the sometimes e-bikes with the Yamasun, um, you know, sort of boxes on the back, and you think, okay, wow, yeah, Amazon's even even in China doing well. But, you know, as your book, I think, really compellingly shows, I mean, there's some sort of systemic problems uh, in Amazon's model with how they compete in China. So I'd love to just hear, you know, about, you know, why Amazon couldn't succeed in china like they have in other markets
1: right Uh, a lot of news reports and research papers uh, have attributed amazon's failure in china to its inability to, to cater to chinese consumers or fierce competition in china but our research shows that the fundamental issue is amazon's iconic flywheel never worked in china you know, the flywheel is something that Jeff Bezos initially wrote down on a napkin. Later, it became the playbook for Amazon's operation. It worked almost flawlessly in all the markets except for China. So why is that? You know, the key components of Amazon's flywheel include its vast selection of goods, competitive pricing, and faster delivery. But in China, Amazon's uh, selection was much narrower than its competitors' offerings, and its pricing was threatened by Chinese rivals like JD or Alibaba that launched either price wars or created shopping festivals to offer big discounts to Chinese consumers. And Amazon's uh, faster delivery was also outperformed by JD. So when the key components of Amazon's flywheel fell apart, so amazon's flavor never worked in china
0: yeah interesting well, what is the current sort of status of of amazon in china there's they're still operating but just at a reduced capacity compared to alibaba and jd or or have they sold some of their assets
1: so they already shut down their domestic e-commerce business and focused on helping Chinese sellers expand overseas and helping Chinese consumers get imported products. Uh, What's even more interesting about the Amazon case is a mentality that just believed that Amazon's flywheel would work in China. So it was just a matter of time Amazon China would conform to the global standard. So I think these primarily came down to Amazon's leadership principles. These are Amazon's cultural Amazon's values. One of them is I remember, leaders are right a lot. So if you if you look at Amazon's history, it's really hard to argue with that because uh, Jeff Bezos has been challenged, questioned, or even laughed at when it, when it came to critical decisions like uh, Kindle, uh, Amazon Web servers, and fulfillment by Amazon. But almost every time he was right. So his people just naturally wanted to believe that he was right about China, but he wasn't.
0: Yeah, really interesting. And I do think, you know, sort of being in the US and and using Amazon, I mean, it's it's much faster here, you know, but... You know, in China, where, you know, you know, there's, you know, all these logistics companies connected to Alibaba or JD that can, you know, have all the, you know, delivery folks that can get things within hours. In some cases, you know, you can see how, you know, that just wouldn't be, you know, they're just not as competitive. So, yeah, very interesting. Um, One of the more interesting cases actually also is, is Norwegian Cruise Line. Um, you know, this is something that, you know, I think they tried to localize in a way that, you know, maybe, you know, Amazon may not have, or some of the other cases may not have, but still ended up, you know, with, um, you know, not great results. So can you talk a little bit about that example?
1: Sure. Norwegian cruise line is a very interesting case. Uh, you know, conventional wisdom is that when you go to a foreign market, you are supposed to localize your offering to local customers. So that's exactly what Norwegian coastline did when it entered in China. It adopted many Chinese characteristics on its ship, like uh, Chinese design and decorations, Chinese restaurants, Chinese tea houses, even Chinese games like mahjong sets. So they also provided a big shopping area with all the luxury brands and uh, three casinos so because Chinese people are known for shopping and gambling. <laughs> so but so they thought this would give them an edge. But ironically, it didn't. Uh, it turns out that westernness is an attribute that Chinese consumers valued in this particular case. So when they got on a cruise ship, they expected an exotic western experience. So adapting too much to local tastes backfired. So in addition, because uh, Norwegian coastline was not a well-known brand in China, so um, they ended up with a more middle-class customer base as opposed to uh, affluent customer base. So those people could afford a nice vacation, but were prudent with your money. So they thought a, a ticket should cover everything. So they were not willing to spend extra on dining and wine. so they, they didn't really shop. Um, at this point, Norwegian Cruise Line found a better opportunity in Alaska, where the return on investment was much higher. So, so they spent $50 million to remove all the Chinese elements and send the ship to Alaska.
0: Wow, that's so interesting. Is is there um, like Royal Caribbean, domestic cruise, uh, sort of cruise industry that does well in China?
1: Yeah, Royal Caribbean Uh, Caribbean has been doing very well in China. So I think Royal Caribbean uh, entered China in 2009. I think it's 2009, and it had made a huge effort to build a strong brand in China. You know, those foreign international cruise companies used to send their old and small ships to China, but Royal Caribbean did the opposite. So they entered China with a ship uh, that could accommodate 2,000 passengers. So which created a sensation in China. So after that, they double down on branding and marketing. So in the eyes of Chinese consumers, Royal Caribbean is the best. So they deserve premium price. So that was something that Norwegian coastline didn't have. And also when it came to... Uh, Daily Operation and uh, Royal Caribbean was much more aggressive than Norwegian Cruise Line. So they created this uh, special sales team uh, with several hundred sales reps. So those people were sent to travel agencies to help them sell tickets. So what they did was to convince customers who showed a slight interest in Norwegian cruise line or other cruise companies. Uh, It was worth extra money to travel with Royal Caribbean. So, you know, this approach definitely was not elegant, but it worked. So that's why Royal Caribbean has been doing very well in China. Um, In terms of domestic um, players, in in fact, cruising um, didn't really exist in China until 2006. Um, Italy's Costa sent its first ship to China. So this industry has been dominated by international cruise companies. Um, There's no significant uh, Chinese player. So that also explains why so many Chinese consumers are still looking for a Western experience. Because cuisine is still a very foreign concept for them.
0: Yeah, really interesting, and I think you know, there's so much. You know, I teach a class on on doing business in China mm-hmm. at Cornell, and you know, one of the things that we really focus on is like the importance of localization. But you know, what this case really shows is that you know, if the consumers actually are expecting something international, then actually localization uh, may end up failing. So that's really, really very interesting. Uh, Another thing in my class that that we focus on a lot is leadership mm-hmm. of the local company. So when it mm-hmm. so when a multinational enters China, you know, who to select as the sort of key leader or leadership mm-hmm. team is a challenge in, in many cases. And I'm wondering, you know, I know leadership is one of the parts of your model, you know, what sort of lessons can we learn about Selecting leaders for Chinese uh, subsidiaries.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of debate on qualification of multinational corporations China leaders Uh, For example, should this person be Chinese or foreigner? Should he or she have extensive experience in China? So our research has showed that there are only two factors that matter most Uh, first Regardless of this, this person's nationality or work experience, he or she must be entrepreneurial because, you know, leading a foreign company into China is like managing a startup as opposed to stewarding a business division and a big company in a mature market. Right. And secondly, this person must be corporate savvy, knowing how to navigate smoothly and the parent organization and getting all the resources the China unit needs so so that being said on the one hand you are supposed to run this company as a startup but on the other hand it's not a real startup because you always have your headquarters u.s headquarters or european headquarters hanging over you you have to manage that relationship but if the channel leader is an external hire So he or she may face big challenges to find allies and to build a relationship with a home office far away from China. You know, sometimes even the CEO is on your side, that message may not uh, get across around the entire organization. You know, unfortunately that's the case for LinkedIn. So we can get into that later on. Uh, So, but when you look at these two qualifications, they actually contradict each other, right? So right. normally, uh, a startup, uh, entrepreneurs cannot be corporate politician. So so that's why the number of people who meet the two requirements is small. So in our book, Sequoia's Nielsen and Inmobis' Jesse Young are two examples of these ideal candidates. But in reality, I think most companies will have to compromise on at least one of these two desirable qualities and hopefully help the candidate develop the other
0: yeah makes sense i'd love to talk about some of those sort of ideal sort of success cases maybe we'll start with uh can you sort of go over that case a bit and why you know why they ended up succeeding
1: yeah so Immobi is india um, mobile advertising company, so when it's, co- when, when its founder, Tawari, decided to come to China, everybody was telling him not to because they thought he would never succeed in China. Because Chinese tech industry has been notoriously difficult for foreign players to break into, a lot of star players have tried but failed. But Imo you know, came anyway, so they bought this product from India, which was not perfect, but outperformed most of its Chinese competitors at the time. So based on that, they were able to build other uh, competitive advantages, such as a more recognizable brand and a massive customer network. But Imobi's success is closely tied to its China leader, Jesse Yang. So Jesse was a McKinsey consultant. She didn't have much experience of running a company when she was hired by Imobi. But she's very entrepreneurial and very passionate and uh force of nature. So she had the guts to push back the global decisions that she thought that didn't affect China. You know, one one of the biggest issues of multinational corporations, China leaders, is they, are, they were very differential to their headquarters. You know, when, sometimes when a global strategy didn't make sense to China, they would implement it anyway. But Jesse is the opposite, and meanwhile, she also knows when to be tough and when to soften and collaborate with the global headquarters. So, under her watch, uh, Imobi China was growing fast, making incredible profits, and as a result, they got more and more resources and greater autonomy. And at one point, um, they were able to hire a separate product team just based in Beijing, producing whatever the products that the China market needed. Last time when we were talking with JSC, they were in the process of spinning off the China unit, making it a separate company. So that was a real success for a foreign tech company in China.
0: I know another part of your model is governance. Uh, And I'd love to, I mean, that's obviously something too, where, you know, maybe the company can try to balance the needs of the local market versus actually, you know, working collaboratively, collaboratively with the headquarters. You know, can you say a little bit about the importance of governance and maybe some of the examples that illustrate that?
1: Governor's structure is a very important managerial decision. We've seen a lot of conflicts rising from governor's decisions and how the conflicts impacted the company's performance in China. You know, the China units always want greater autonomy, more resources, and decision-making authority. The parent organization, on the other hand, may not want to give up control, and sometimes they may have right reasons not to do so. For example, the relationship between LinkedIn China and its parent was tense. Uh, LinkedIn China actually had more autonomy relative to other multinational China units, but it still felt too many constraints from the headquarters. So with the tension building up, they ended up cutting ties with the parent organization and started something from scratch, which unfortunately didn't turn out to be successful. The good example is Sequoia, so which has adopted a decentralized and centralized governance structure. A decision-making is made locally, and the company's cultural values and financial interests tie the organization together. You know, for example, Sequoia partners often invest in their own money in funds controlled by partners in other regions. So it's like everybody has their hands in everybody's pockets. Um, The reason that Sequoia is able to adopt a unique governance structure is because there is a deep trust between Sequoia US and Sequoia China. But, but it wasn't like that from the beginning. You know, Dr. Neone is a US managing partner. and In the past, when he saw his Chinese partners do something that he considered odd, he would pick up the phone and interrogate them until he realized that there was logic behind that. But now when he says something that he doesn't understand, he just lets his Chinese partners handle it, because he he knows there must be a good reason. So, Sequoia's unique governance structure is part of the reason for its success in China.
0: Yeah. Very interesting. I'd love to hear just a little bit more about Sequoia too. I mean, some of our listeners may not realize how successful and powerful in some ways Sequoia is, particularly in the tech mm-hmm. industry. You know, they might have heard of, you know, Sequoia in the US and not realize that, you know, there's this guy, you know, Neil Shen in China, who's invested in basically all of the top um you know, top IT uh, platform company. So could you just, you know, give a little bit of a history of Sequoia and some of its investments?
1: Sure. So Sequoia is one of the top VC firms in China. If you think of the VC business, it's really about connections and tapping into the ecosystem. And this is an American company. It came to China and became one of the most powerful VC firms in China. So that's really impressive. Uh, Sequoia entered China in 2005. That was a time the so-called new economy powered by the internet just started booming. So Chinese entrepreneurs then took a playbook from the West and created similar ventures at home. So there was a strong demand for venture capital. And Chinese entrepreneurs at the time admired Silicon Valley's famed entrepreneurs like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk. Sequoia was a visa firm that had partnered with both. So in the eyes of Chinese entrepreneurs, Sequoia represented success. As the best entrepreneurs all wanted to work with Sequoia, that brand really gave Sequoia a strong foothold initially. Over the years, uh, Sequoia China has also invested in many well-known companies like uh, e-commerce giants, Alibaba and JD, uh, rising stars like Pinduoduo, Bidans, a ride-hailing company, Didi Chushin, and Meituan Dianping, which is like a combination of Guban, Yap, Up, Kayak, and Uber. So out of over 500 companies Sequoia China invested, 53 were valued at more than $1 billion each. In fact, since China provides plenty of opportunities, uh, the size of Sequoia China actually uh, is even bigger than Sequoia U.S. Sequoia's China head is Neil Shen. So he has played a critical role in Sequoia's success. And he, he's a... Um, entrepreneur-turned-investor, and has topped Forbes Midas list three years in a row. Uh, Niu is one of the co-founders of C-Trip, a travel company that went public on Nasdaq back in 2003. Um, so as a former entrepreneur, he can connect with Chinese entrepreneurs because he, he was in their shoes. But as an investor, he also runs Sequoia China effectively. You know, in China, many VC firms are, are like a one-man shop. You know, you have this one dominant partner and everybody else works for him. But Neil runs Sequoia in a more institutional way, making sure he's not the only person that makes decisions. So that's why he's able to keep Thailand and Sequoia China. Uh, Nang Nia is one of the three global stewards and Sequoia, which means uh, one of the most powerful figures. Um, apparently, he's both entrepreneurial and corporate savvy.
0: <laughs> yeah, sort of fits 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 your model perfectly. That's that's great. You know, it's interesting, sort of as we've talking a little bit about silicon valley um you know one of the cases i'd really love to talk about is linkedin because you know on the one hand you know if you compare it to you know facebook twitter instagram you know it's actually in china but you know it's maybe not as successful as some other you know some of his other competitors uh, in China. So could you say a little bit about the LinkedIn case and what what sort of generalizations we can draw about multinational social networks uh, in China?
1: Okay, sure. So LinkedIn is a very interesting case. You know, before entering the Chinese market, Reid Hoffman had done extensive research on foreign internet companies that had failed in China. So they came up with a new operational model Uh, It formed a joint venture with Chinese VC firms to gain connections and regulatory benefits. And LinkedIn China had its own board separate from that of the parent organization. And its China team was offered stock options and its China president had the privilege to report directly to the global CEO. So these were really great moves. That's why for a while LinkedIn was considered a role model for foreign internet companies entering in China. But LinkedIn's strategy quickly shifted to build a completely local product, chi 2 just for the Chinese market. So in this way, it voluntarily gave up its only competitive advantage, the global network, putting it in the same position as its competitors, with no strength to play. So the new product didn't get much traction, and LinkedIn ended up shutting down Chintu, and the China president also resigned.
0: Okay. And what's the status of LinkedIn currently in China?
1: So after that, they sort of scaled back. They have a new China president reporting to the global head of engineering, not a global CEO anymore. So they also shifted focus from professional working to career development. But I think that actually makes sense because Chinese people nowadays are are more like their counterparts in the West in a sense that they are willing to adopt products or service that can enhance the quality of their lives. But in certain areas, they remain very Chinese, behaving the same way as they always have. Networking is one of the areas where Chinese people tend to stick to tradition um, making connections through people they already know in real life, as opposed to building an online network with some weak ties. So I think that demand for online professional networking is not yet evident in China.
0: Got it. And how, how did they get and I know that sort of sort of for Facebook and Twitter, you know, Google a famous example, you know, sort of there's potential issues of, you know, sensitive topics mm-hmm. or, or censorship. I mean, how, how does LinkedIn deal with that issue?
1: You know, from the very beginning, LinkedIn actually uh, had made it clear that it would accept uh, government restrictions on content. So, But I really don't think that this censorship is something that uh, prevents LinkedIn succeeding in China. You know, because in in China, uh, LinkedIn has been uh, perceived as a high-end job hunting site as opposed to... Uh, professional networking platform, which is LinkedIn's worldwide positioning. So that's why for many Chinese professionals, they just create an account on LinkedIn and never come back. So the user engagement rate remains to be very low. So they consume content on WeChat not on LinkedIn.
0: Hmm. You know, I'm interested, I mean, now that we're talking about, um, you know, some of these different potential, I don't know, sensitive topics and how it affects business and sort of multinationals. I'd love to talk a little bit about sort of more current affairs. And, you know, recently in the news, there's been cases of like H&M, uh, Nike, you know, and sort of backlash from Chinese consumers. You know, does any of your research and examples shed light on how companies can deal with situations like that?
1: Yes, Um Actually, we've seen this kind of backlash uh, faced by multinational corporations uh, from Chinese consumers in the past. So, our book covers the story of Hyundai, the Korean car maker, so which encountered an unpredicted crisis from, uh, from Chinese consumers when the US deployed its missile defense system, THAAD, in Korea, so which triggered anti-Korea protests in China, because China thought that could be used to spy on Chinese territory. So the sales of Hyundai cars plunged. Um, and actually, a few years before, when the tension between China and Japan over the d- disputed Diaoyu Island escalated, um, anti-Japan protests erupted in China in multiple cities. So that even involved violence. So, Chinese consumers smashed Japanese cars and even hurt Japanese car owners. So, a very interesting comparison is how Japanese car makers uh, endured this crisis. So, they were able to recover from the crisis much faster. So, only one year after the crisis, some of them even saw Nissan, like Nissan, Toyota, uh, or already saw um, record sales in China, but that's not the case for uh, Hyundai. So the, the, the big difference between Hyundai and those uh, Japanese car makers is uh, the Japanese car makers were able to build a strong brand acceptance in China. They already won Chinese consumers over. Um, so my point is, these kind of external factors can only impact our brand for short term, not long term.
0: So you think the, the current... Brands that are under attack, just lay low for a little bit and then, you know, things will get better uh, in time. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah I. What, what one of the cases uh, in my uh, class on doing business in China that we study is the NBA. Yeah, right. And it seems that right. actually ended up working uh, there, too, where, you know, there was about a year or so where they got pulled from Chinese networks. But I believe they're actually back on now. And so, you know, back things are things things are back to normal
1: yes because things are changing constantly in china and some of them were really out of your control what you can do is to develop your own competitive advantages such as elevating your brand or building a strong relationship with your customers these will help you better endure crisis
0: yeah and certainly um you know time heals all wounds as as they say and also You know, that's, you know, maintaining a good relationship with the government is tremendously important, too. And I know, you know, one of the cases that is sort of, I guess, sort of near and dear to to me is Intel. You know, I've actually visited uh, Intel's assembly plant in Chengdu probably three Mm -hmm. or four times, Uh, you know, have various colleagues and friends that Mm -hmm. work or have worked there and I'd love to learn a little bit about that because that's something where you know and I think they also have a chip uh, fab in Dalian I mean these are multi-billion dollar investments uh, I believe and it's a huge you know sort of business risk Um, and so you know maintaining close relationships with the government is obviously tremendously important for things like that and can you you know say a little bit about the Intel case and how that shines light on government relations?
1: Well when it comes to Building a good relationship with the Chinese government, Intel has done it extraordinarily. So one of the strategies they used was to align its expansion plan with China's national priorities. You know, for example, when the Chinese government encouraged enterprises to invest in China's underdeveloped Western regions, Intel was the first foreign company to respond and built a factory in the city of Chengdu. So while other foreign companies were reluctant to go there, so the Chinese government, of course, appreciated India's effort and offered preferential treatment. Even though the relationship with the government was good in, in general, there were still frictions. So, you know, China once developed its own standard for wireless technology and required international companies in China to implement it But Intel refused to do so and took the issue to WTO. And so China ended up dropping the standard. But the damage was done. So Intel found a way to repair the relationship with China. So they knew China always wanted a semiconductor fabrication plant. So they built one in the city of Dalian, where the government had called for investment. So as you can see, um, Intel showed its corporate diplomacy again. Uh, Intel now generates one quarter of its revenue from China, uh, which is around twenty billion dollars.
0: Yeah. So yeah, follow, follow government priorities is definitely um, <laughs> definitely, and, and you know, I think that you know in China that it's not a secret or surprise. I mean, there are these guiding documents. You know, the yeah, yeah, the right, Shibu right. Fajan you know, that was like a big deal for you know, the go West um, for a long time. Now we have, you know, there's a vari- variety of, you know, really important industries, you know, more recently things like, I don't know, solar or wind. So, you know, that's, you know, the way, how you can align with the government is hugely, uh, hugely important without a doubt. One of the things that's been in the news as well recently is, you know, COVID-19 and how, China and Chinese companies have done relatively well, uh, and certainly since the since the virus is under control in China, the economy has bounced back tremendously. Can you say sort of what? Uh, COVID-19 has had an impact on multinationals in China and how you see with vaccine rollout and, um, and situation getting better, how, how the multinational uh, situation won't prove.
1: Right. COVID-19 has caused a massive damage to the entire world. But it's surprising that many multinational corporations in China even have benefited from the pandemic. Uh, for example, luxury brands. You know, Chinese consumers usually make more than half of luxury purchases overseas. But COVID-19 keeps them from traveling and traps all the spending at home. So as a result, many leading luxury brands have seen a big surge in sales in China. Uh, some of them even have better performance than pre-COVID era. So the Italian luxury menswear brand Zinnia, which we covered in our book, even opened a new store in China during the pandemic. But Xenia is not alone. Other brands like Walmart or Starbucks all added investment in China. Uh, that's because China is the first major economy to recover from COVID-19 as the Chinese government adopted a aggressive approach to contain the virus and it worked. So as a result, many multinational corporations rely on China more than ever to deliver a positive financial outcome so in fact some of them even feel fortunate that they have China operations to compensate losses elsewhere.
0: yeah that's great particularly I mean I you know xenia is Italian uh, uh, but you know in the US it's so interesting many of the people that I interview, you know, talk about how the the environment is great now for multinationals in, mm-hmm. in China, whereas, you know, if you look at the news in the U.S. and see sort of political discourse, mm-hmm. you would think that, you know, U.S. companies aren't welcome and, are, and aren't doing well. But actually, in many ways, the opposite uh, is true. So, you know, that's, you know, right. really appreciate you sharing that. Um Sort of in our last uh, minutes, I'd love to sort of back up a little bit and sort of understand some of your research process and then also some of the more, you know, sort of general rules that you can share for for our listeners. Uh, So I think, uh, is there any of the cases that we haven't discussed yet? I think we've covered most of them. Is that right? All eight?
1: Yeah, most of them.
0: Great. I'm curious, how how did you come to choose those eight? I mean, they're really, you know, some some of which, you know, I don't know, Intel, Sequoia, Amazon, you know, leading global names, but, you know, some of the other ones that are, I think, provide really important insights, like Inmobi, um, the Norwegian Cruise Line, you know, I wouldn't have thought of initially. So I'd love to hear about how you chose those cases.
1: Um, so, um I started uh, my initial research in the summer of 2018, shortly after I quit my, my job. And Carl joined me later. And so when we first started this project, our goal was to explore some places that hadn't been explored before. So we want our stories to be new stories. First time that someone had extensively written about those companies' experience in China. So we, we didn't want to write about Apple or Uber or Starbucks because these are well-known stories. And we also want to include companies that are not just from U.S., but from countries like maybe India or, or Italy or Korea from all over the world. And to ensure the diversity, we also looked into companies from tech, uh, consumer, and B2B. So initially, we put together a list of over 200 companies, and eventually, we narrowed down to the eight.
0: Yeah, very valuable set of companies. So thank you for sort of sharing the the rigor behind that. And I think one of the things that I learned certainly from the book is, you know, I'm more familiar with US companies, but to learn about, you know, the Korean, India and Italy experience as well really helps, you know, round things out in a nice way. So one of the really valuable things about your book is the framework uh, that you develop. And, you know, I encourage folks to go out and get the, get the book because actually it's really nice how you introduce it in the beginning and then actually carry it through each chapter. Uh, you know, sort of the end of each chapter is sort of how the how the case fits in your, in your framework. Can you say a little bit about maybe some of the generalizations that you drew that can help future businesses that want to compete in China? Like what are the key recommendations or areas of success that they have to focus on?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, so to succeed in China for a foreign company, you have to meet three necessary conditions. Uh, they are demined. uh So you have to provide a product or service that meets a need. Uh, secondly, market access, you are allowed to operate in China legally. And third, uh, you have to come to the arena with some significant advantages and Uh, relative to your local competition. So in addition to these three necessary conditions, uh, the company also needs to competently make five managerial decisions. Uh, They are commitment, governors, uh, leadership, um, strategy, and the product that, that you bring.
0: Great. Super. Very, very, very useful. Uh, And uh, I don't have any more questions. So just want to thank you so much, Lola, for joining us on China Corner Office. I think this is going to be a really valuable episode for folks that are interested in doing business in China. So really appreciate you spending the time.
1: My pleasure.
0: Thanks for joining us on China Corner Office. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Marquis, Kaiser Guo, and Jason McRonald. Did you enjoy the show? If so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know your thoughts. And don't forget to subscribe to the feed for alerts when new episodes are published. See you soon.